You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 297 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Joe Leo is the CEO and founder of Death Method, an agile software consultancy with a core competency in Ruby. He also co-authored the Well-Grounded Rubyist Third Edition with David A. Black. Outside of the office, he helped to build the NYC developer community as lead organizer of GoRuco, co-organizer of NYC.rb, a member of the Technical Advisory Board of the New York Foundling, and an instructor at General Assembly. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Brittany. It's my pleasure. Joe, what is your developer origin story? Um, I... Um... I went to college to, um, to study computer science, and then after a semester, I decided uh, I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I uh, got a college degree in business and um, went into the music business. This was right around when iTunes came out. It wasn't a great time <laughs> to be in the music business. Uh, so I got out and uh, was looking for jobs, and one job in particular, um, looked like it might be a fit and it was it was just an administrative position at NYU School of Medicine um, here in New York City Um, but the plus side was that they had this um, they had this problem with their uh, the way they gave exams uh, to all of their first and second year students what they call preclinical and the problem was simply that they were giving the exams uh, the exams were just held in uh, Word documents, and every time, every year when it was time to give this particular exam, they would just kind of shuffle the questions around, and they'd take some out and put some in, and then that would be their test. And so they really had no idea like how well questions were performing, and they didn't have a good idea of how um, how to randomize things properly or um, or gauge performance on the test. And so they said, "Hey, do you think you could improve on this?" And since it was just a Word document, I said, yes, I think I can improve on it. Um, but I really didn't know how. I didn't get the degree in computer science. And so all of a sudden I started, you know, I took an administrative role. I did a lot of, you know, photocopying and, you know, and uh, other stuff. But on the side, I got to work on this system. And, um, and I started to take some courses in software development. I, um, and I began building this, um, this database that, you know, you know, in a short amount of time could randomize questions, but then soon after that we could um, take scantrons and, you know, and feed the scores in and see how people did on each particular question. We could take questions out that were not deemed to be fair because so many people got them wrong um, and for good reason. And we got to improve the questions. And over time we got to a point where we could actually um, we could actually predict within one standard deviation how well people would do on average on on an exam. Um, so that really gave me, you know, a, a kind of a second shot at this this programming computer science thing. Um, I really liked it, um, and I wanted to try. I wanted to try doing it full time at NYU. Unfortunately, they they didn't have any positions available, and so I uh, I joined a consultancy that took a real shot on me because I still was very, um, 
it was a very raw product, you know. I mean, I knew some things that I taught myself and a couple of, you know, extracurricular courses. Uh, but there was a consultancy that took a chance on me, and um, I started working with them, and it was an incredible experience, and I never looked back. That's amazing. That's just another place that I can point to. I strongly believe that when you want to learn something, you really need to put skin in the game. So I really like the idea that you agreed to do this project before you had the skills. And so you worked your way into it and really improved something that was being actively used. So you could prove that whatever you built was really uh, the right fit. Yeah, I think that's true. Although maybe a little bit less altruistic is that I really needed a job, you know? So when they asked me, can you do better? I said, well, yeah, I could do better. I'll, you know, I need a paycheck. Um, But, you know, besides that, yes, I I knew that I had had some programming skills that I could apply. And, uh, and we did use that strategy of, you know, kind of test the market, right? Like use it with the students. At some point we were telling, we knew, we, we began developing these practice exams with questions that weren't going to be on the actual exam, but were, were very close to it. And we got to a point where we were able to say, hey, students that take the practice exam score something like 12% higher on average than people that don't, so take the practice exam, you know? And so that became a really cool thing to be able to see, um, you know, the way, um, the way users, res- I guess users, in this case students, kind of responded to the material. I love that. Data is not going to lie, but Microsoft Word certainly can. So, <laughs> Right, right, right. So you, uh, I attended your talk at RubyConf, which was excellent, and we'll definitely dig into that later. But during the talk, you told the story behind the well-grounded Rubyist, and I would love for you to share that with the listeners. Yeah, sure. It's actually, it's pretty funny how it happened. Um, so the Well-Grounded Rubyist, the, the first edition and the second edition, were, were books that I used to learn Ruby. Um, there weren't that many Ruby books at the time. And um, David A. Black was one, is one of the um, sort of founders or, or stewards, if you will, of the, the Ruby community. And he certainly um, had a large influence on on most Ruby engineers um, in the early days. And so, you know, before I knew David, I was reading his book. Everybody I knew was reading his book. And um, at some point, he came to teach um, at a company that I was consulting for. He came to teach, and I got to know him a little bit there. Um, You know, like one of these two-week courses. He was... um, running something called Ruby Power and Light at the time where he would go and he would te- teach these um, courses for a week or two to, to get people's skills up in Ruby. Um, so I took the course. It was fantastic. Got to know David. Went to RubyConf 2008, and I know how old that makes me sound, um, and hung out with David, and then we really got close. And then, you know, lo and behold, he was uh, looking for new opportunities, and he and I ended up working together. And so we had this, this great um, working relationship, turned into a friendship. He's still my friend today. Um, and you know, years later, after we weren't working together anymore, um, Manning approached, Dave Manning's the book publisher, approached David and um, asked him if he would like to write a third edition to The Well-Grounded Rubyist, and he said, no thanks. 
Um, he really just didn't want to do it again. David is a writer um, at heart. You know, The Well-Rounded Rubius is not the first book he's written, but I think he didn't want to do another slog through all of the material and updating it. Um, you know, it's a big job. And so he said, no, I don't, I don't think I want to do it. I agree that it should be done, though, and I know somebody who might be interested. And so uh, I think he sent me an email or called me, and we talked, and he said, you know, I don't even know when they're going to want it or if they'll want to work with you, um, but if it's okay with you, you I'll, I'll put your name uh, out there. And, you know, without hesitation, I said yes, because I, <laughs> I was really flattered, and I didn't think it was that big of a chance that it was going to happen. Um, so David sent the email and not only did it happen, but that day I was on the phone with one of Manning's editors talking about what could possibly be done with the new book and when it could possibly be finished. And I had no experience in this at all. Um, but you know, David and I were able to collaborate a little bit and uh, we came up with a plan for how the new book would come out. And um, and off I went on this adventure of, you know, kind of co-authoring this book. That is such an incredible story. And I just love the connection that you made in person with David and just how serendipitous it all worked out. So, Joe, did you end up putting your own spin on the book? Yeah, I did. Um, we, um, you know, we decided that we wanted to keep the book very similar to the first two um, in that, you know, David had come up with a way of teaching this material that was, is just unparalleled. And um, so for a majority of the, the book, especially in the beginning, I was really just updating, editing things that had changed over the years um, between versions of Ruby. But... Um, there were a couple of things that I, you know, that I wanted to, to change and I guess put my own spin on. And one of them was, you know, I wanted there to be some work for, um, for programmers to do at home, uh, so to speak, or while they were working on the book. So giving some challenges and then um, providing the answers on GitHub. And so all of the, not every example, but every example that I've worked on um, is available on GitHub and, you know, free to, free to check out while reading the book as sort of a companion. The other thing is that, you know, David and I are different people. He has a lot of his examples um, based on classical musicians. And so when I, I wouldn't change all of them just for the heck of it, but whenever I saw an opportunity to add a new example or change one of his examples, I would bend it more towards, you know, rap artists and like WNBA stars. Um, I just wanted to put my own personality in the book. I think that's awesome and probably makes it way more fun to edit and write, especially if you can see your personality come through. Yeah, I hope so. I know I've had friends that have read it and they've been trying to guess, well, it looks like Joe wrote this part of it and probably David wrote this part of it. Uh, I, don't know how, I don't know how correct they are, but I think that's fun to do. That is fun to do. That's a good game to play. So Joe, what's the story behind Deaf Method? Um, I left uh, full-time employment in 2014. I started Deaf Method. It is a New York City-based agile software consultancy. And our, our mission is to be the greatest software development company in New York City. And, um, and that's really it. You know, that's not, <laughs> not too lofty. <laughs> um, but the story behind it is that I was 
I had worked on many different kinds of teams. I had been in consulting. That was, you know, my first job after NYU was at a consulting company. I did lots of consulting for big, big companies, uh, small companies, government regulated companies, etc. And um, then I, then I left there. I went into the startup world. From there, I went into banking, and so I, I felt like I had been at a number of different companies. I found, you know, across those twelve years, is what I really do love is service. Um, I love to consult, I love to work with people on difficult challenges, and I love to see, you know, products come to life, be improved, um, see teams improve, and so, um, you know, I wanted to be an agent to that again, um, and I had this opportunity to go with one particular company that was a, is a service company. Um, and I had this other opportunity because I had spent all of my time here in New York City. I had this other opportunity to kind of go it alone. What I thought I was doing when I started Death Method was effectively going it alone with maybe a few friends that would also be contractors. And that is how it started. But it quickly grew and my role quickly evolved. And um, at some point we had the opportunity to acquire another consulting company. Um, and, you know, from there, Things got bigger, our customers got bigger, um, and um, engagements got more complex, and my job got more challenging and more interesting. And um, so I stuck with it, you know, and uh, today I'm really happy to, you know, to be leading a group of just incredibly smart, um, talented humans that, um, that are working in, in service, like working in service to our customers. That's great because, you know, you basically designed a job that was going to make you an, happy and optimize your happiness. And it's funny how other people can be attracted to that. I think it is. You know, it is, it's a really humbling thing. Um, nowadays, I'm working with, you know, pr some programmers that are better than I ever was, and, and rightfully so. I, I, didn't, I didn't keep writing software. Um, after a while, I, you know, I switched to managing a company, but it is, it's flattering, um, but really humbling to see people that you respect so much say, Hey, I, I want to work here. This is a place that I'd like to, you know, um, spend a portion of my career that, um, you know, I take that, I take that very seriously. I, and I am incredibly grateful for everybody who, you know, who says yes and signs up and, and decides to come and work with us. Well, speaking of, um, are you currently hiring? And if so, what are you looking for? Sure. Um, we're hiring like every company is hiring, but, um, but maybe not, maybe not quite the same. So we're not a startup, you know, this was, um, this company was started with a, a couple of thousand dollars I had left over after I left my last job. Um, and so I'm a believer in, um, in slow conservative growth backed by, you know, strong operational principles. And so we, we grow, um, when, when it's needed, you know, we grow when the market demands, we grow as we're able to, uh, because we put operational support in place. But um, at the moment, we are hiring software engineers and we are hiring 
engagement managers. Um, we, are, we are also looking for a director of product. So there are a few roles that are open right now. Um, and, um, and they're all available. Um, if you go to deathmethod.com, you can, you can take a look um, at our job postings. Fabulous. Well, we'll definitely link that up in the show notes. So let's go ahead and dive into your talk, The Functional Rubyist at RubyConf. It was really well attended, which is awesome. What inspired you to present on the topic? Well, the inspiration is that that's, that's what I had the most to do with in the new version of the book. Um, I had, you know, a few years ago, I think, taken a look at the Ruby community or really the Ruby core team and saw how it seemed to be like, even though functional programming was always supported, at least in, um, not in theory, but at least by design, you could program functionally. There weren't a lot of tools um, in the language itself that supported functional programming. And over the last few years, that's really started to change. And if you look at what's coming out in Ruby 2.7 with pattern matching, um, in Ruby 3.0 with um, you know mandatory frozen strings, those are things that are continuing to push Ruby in a functional way. And so I you know, talked to David and I talked to my editor about it and I said, I think this is something that we should put down on paper, um, add a chapter, you know, talk about functional programming in Ruby and talk about some of these concepts so that people can get them and get ahead of them. Um, and you know, it seems like from RubyConf, from Matt's keynote, there were, uh, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. They really are continuing to lean on innovations in Elixir and feature language features in languages like F Sharp and Clojure and incorporating them into Ruby. And I think that's a good idea. So that's the inspiration is that I spent so much time writing about it um, that I got sort of even more passionate about it. Um, and I like speaking. And I like to, I like talking to people and um, and I wanted to try to put something together where I could um, reach more people and talk about that topic. Well, I think it definitely resonated with the attendees and I completely agree. There felt like there was a functional undercurrent at this conference and so I think you just happened to nail it right right when people were even more excited than they have been. I was really glad to see it. I was shocked at how many people were at the talk. It was... Uh, um, it was incredible to see that um, that many people just wanted to get in and, and take a look. So for everybody that couldn't, uh, I'm glad we'll have a video of it to share. Yes, for sure. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. And now for our first, today's podcast, and also, believe it or not, potentially a turkey. That's right. A turkey is brought to you by Brian Mariani of Near Replacement, the recruiting shop built by Rails Engineers for Rails Engineers. You heard me correctly. Brian Mariani at Mirror wants to send you a turkey this year. It's Thanksgiving season and we all have so much to be thankful for. Brian's thankful the Ruby on Rails community and Mirror, which he founded 12 Novembers ago to serve it. As a sign of gratitude, if you're a Rails developer currently in the market, a startup seeking to grow your team, or just simply curious to hear about market and salary trends, Brian would love to chat with you. Turkeys are in limited supply, so please reach out to Brian today and drop the code word, wait for it, Gobble, gobble. And if you don't need a turkey, Brian still wants to talk to you and will send the turkey to a friend of a nonprofit of your choosing. That's Brian at mirrorplacement.com, code word, gobble, gobble. 
And on a personal note, Brian just sent me a turkey and it's fabulous. So listeners, if you are interested, <laughs> now's the last week. So definitely reach out. And thank you to Mirror Placement for sponsoring the show. Back to you, Joe. So I'd love to ask you a few questions from your talk. So let's kick it off with what's made, what makes a pure functional programming language? Sure. Um, probably the definitions vary and maybe some functional purists will argue this, but I think it comes down to two uh, principles. The first is referential transparency. And referential transparency means that when you call the same function with the same arguments, you will get the same result no matter how many times you call it. Uh, the simple example in Ruby is any of the mathematical operators plus multiplication divide. Um, if you put two numbers in to your plus function, you're going to get the same result every single time. Um, the second principle is that the language will support and in some cases enforce immutability. And immutability is simply state that cannot be changed after an object is created. So the easiest example to point to in Ruby is strings. Um, unlike some other languages, strings are mutable. You can change them in place. Um, you call upcase bang and your string now has all capital letters and that string itself is, is changed. But um, on a bigger scale, objects are, are mutable um, and have mutable state and that's, that's part of object-oriented design. So uh, while referential transparency is supported in most cases in Ruby, um, but not enforced. Immutability will really never be enforced at any kind of a, uh, on any kind of a grand scale because it is an object-oriented design language that supports functional programming. I find that so fascinating just because I haven't spent a ton of time looking at Ruby in a functional way, so that makes a lot of sense. So what do you consider side effect free Ruby? So side effect is, it's really kind of the, co the colloquial version of referential transparency. Um, anytime some state is altered, you've got a side effect. So this can be as simple as an instance variable in your object, some counter that's, you know, that gets updated when a particular function is called, for example, that's altering state because that that instance variable may have a different value every time a function is called. Um, but it's not limited to that. When things get really tricky is that, um, you know, writing to a database is a side effect. The, the side effect is that, you know, the database now has one more entry. So it's not, it's not contained. Something changes inalterably once you execute the function. Printing data out to a screen or an exception being raised um, are also examples of side effects. And those may be necessary. So when we're talking about writing side effect free Ruby, we're really talking about functions over objects and making those functions referentially transparent. In other words, um, creating functions that do one and only one thing and having that thing not alter the state of your program. Thank you so much for the thorough explanation. That actually makes a lot of sense. And listeners, if you uh, check out Joe's talk, you'll definitely get more information. 
So one concept that you brought up that I found to be probably the most profound idea in your entire talk was the idea of currying. So why would you want to use this and what is it? Sure. Um, currying is something that I struggled with for a while. Um, but the definition of it is simply breaking one function with many arguments down into many functions, each with one argument. Um, so, you know, a function, and I should say, I've been saying functions this whole time, um, methods in Ruby are, are functions, and I kind of use them interchangeably. Um, although it's also true that when I, in practice, when I'm writing functions that, um, when I'm writing functions, a lot of times I'm using the Lambda syntax, but that is not necessary. Um, you can write functional programs just using regular method definitions. Um, but with currying, you're taking a, um, this is, this goes straight back into mathematical underpinnings. Um, it's really taking, it's really just breaking a complex function down into its parts so that a function with two arguments can be broken down into two functions, each with one argument. Um, the reason that you would do this is to support partial function application or to create generic functions. So partial function application is, um, oh, well, let's actually start with generic functions. The reason you would create generic functions is because those are really the building blocks to larger functions. So what I argued in my talk, and um, I, didn't, I didn't get any pushback, so I guess I'll say it again until, <laughs> until somebody argues <laughs> with me, um, is that a way to think of generic functions is as if generic functions are to functional programming um, what objects are to object-oriented programming. So a generic function, think of it like a superclass. Okay, a superclass could be a vehicle, for example, and it's generic in nature. But the subclasses, the school bus, motorcycle, sports car, those are applications of that superclass and they're more specialized. So generic functions are the same thing. Um, you want to create a function that can take, you know, one or more arguments and will apply those arguments as needed so that you can partially apply those functions or, or use those generic functions as building blocks to more specialized, individuated functions that can take care of specific jobs. Got it. Okay. So as you're starting to dive into currying, so if you see an opportunity in your application, is it recommended that you perhaps convert some methods to use currying to see if you get a performance boost? Like what, what's the best use case for it? I wouldn't look for the performance boost. Um, I think that, you know, the performance boost comes when you can do true concurrent programming and that's just not possible with Ruby right now. Um, you could do multi-threaded programming, but true concurrent programming, meaning you can execute two threads at exactly the same time, maybe across multiple cores, uh, would require some redesign or some um, some larger thinking of the global interpreter lock in Ruby, um, and we're not there yet. So I would say the reason you would use 
the reason you would use currying in Ruby first is to learn how to use currying in Ruby um, because it can create a more terse syntax. It can, um, it can leave you with more dry. It can even display your intent um, in a more effective manner. So one example might be if you're coming across um, a lot of unstructured data that needs to be parsed. Mm -hmm. um, you can run that data through a generic function which uh, filters it for you know, some symbol, for example, to break it apart, and then continue to run it through subsequent functions that can alter that data. And you might be able to, to do that in a few lines of functional code, whereas to do that in an object-oriented manner may take, you know, uh, it may take a handful of classes or modules or both to do the same job. So I would look for, in with currying, I would look to use it to learn because it's a big tenet of a lot of other languages and it's an important thing to, to understand. Um, and then also look for ways to, that you can be more concise with your, with your code and with your programs. I love that. So if I wanted to experiment, which of course I do now that I've learned about currying, uh, would you recommend that I write my own partial functions or should I rely on the curry method? Well, for me, I understood partial function application a lot better after I curried a couple of methods by hand, um, <laughs> which, you know, I don't recommend you doing it in production code, but for understanding it, um, you know, Ruby will support you take you writing um, two functions chained together, each taking one argument, right? Um, that's mm -hmm. something I demonstrated in the talk. It will support any number of functions chained together, each taking one argument. So you can break something down by hand. Um, I think a good litmus test is to break it down by hand see how it behaves and then call curry and see how it behaves. And they should be similar. Um, and um, then, you know, in your production code, I think the idea is to just call curry because it takes care of both partial function application and currying under the hood. All right, well, I feel like I've got some homework to do. So thank you for that. Sure. <laughs> so Joe, after attending RubyConf this past week, how do you feel about the Ruby community as a whole? The Ruby community seems really strong, really focused, and you know, really engaged. I feel great about the community. Um, I don't. I haven't been to RubyConf in a few years, but it is way larger <laughs> than it used to be, um, and I think the fact that it's growing is really exciting. Um, I think the fact that um, seemingly, regardless of what city they put it in, there's still you know tons of people that want to come is great and I loved the energy of the conference. Um, I wanted to understand, I wanted to get a, maybe your take on, on something because I, while I feel great about the Ruby community, I left RubyConf feeling a little bit less great about the state of the language. And I think this is just because the, you know, the keynote seemed to walk back several of the things that were promised in Ruby 3, which mm -hmm. you know, is, we're about a year away from. We are. It was interesting because it actually got us a little further in Ruby 2.7 than I thought we would, but it seemed to take a giant step back from the audacious Ruby 3x3 announcement. Yeah, so I... What did you I, think about that? So I'm a former product manager, and I have learned the harsh lesson of promising something before you can deliver it. 
And so by making the whole Ruby three by three promise, I understand where he was coming from. It's to, you know, encourage the community not to leave, to go to maybe perhaps Elixir or another programming language. So I get why they felt that they needed to do it and really to fight against the whole Ruby's dead, Ruby's slow. But um, yeah, the, <laughs> the keynote, I agree, was it ended on a funny note where basically like we will not quit fighting, but we're not dead yet. It's <laughs> just like, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, it's funny too. Uh, the Ruby is dead argument is, uh, it's kind of laughable. Like, because, because those stats that he put up at the beginning of it being, you know, roughly the eighth or something mm-hmm. most popular language, like that's, that's really good. And that hasn't really changed in years. It's always been that way. It, it had this rocket ship effect where people thought, oh, it was gonna, it's gonna knock off Java and Python and .NET. And you know what, guess what, it didn't. Um, and it probably won't, and that is also kind of okay. Um, the, the thing that I think is harder for some Rubyists, especially people that have gone out and experienced some of these other, other languages, is that, um, you know, um, it becomes more of a challenge to justify why we're using Ruby on a particular project. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of flashy startups now are going to choose Ruby necessarily for their, their app. They might if they want to get a quick MVP to use Ruby on Rails, which I think is a fabulous choice. But I think there's a really awesome opportunity for Rails and Ruby developers who are willing to work on legacy applications because there are just so many of them out there that are making real money, that are making a real impact on this world and will continue to need additional uh, assistance in order to keep Ruby and Rails going. Well, that's 100% true. I definitely agree with that. Somebody was saying, it was Michael Hartle who was uh, talking to me at, uh, the, at the conference and said, you know, there's a he said something like there aren't as many startups using Ruby, but all of a sudden there are many billion dollar companies using Ruby. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. And that's not something I expected to hear, you know, at any point in my career, but it's true. Um, I still think, I mean, at, at least in New York, in my small corner of the world, a lot of people, even startups are, you know, open to using Ruby and, and using Ruby on Rails. Cause like you said, it's a great language for getting an MVP out the door. It's a great prototyping language. Um, my, you know, what I think is that, you know, you still, starting with Ruby is a good thing. And then, you know, replacing or changing or adding um, other languages can, can be a really good choice depending on what your needs are, what the application's needs are. So I have this thing on my bucket list and that is to be able to experience Ruby in Japan. I've been to Japan before uh, for, for vacation. But I would love to feel what it'd be like to be in the Ruby community in Japan because when they come over here and get excited about Ruby, I get really excited. So I can just imagine that it's almost like a Ruby Mecca over there. Yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> and maybe that's the promised land. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. It um, could be. I, that would be a very cool thing to go and, um, yeah, to go there and either do some kind of an internship or externship, or maybe just go to a conference there. I bet that would be really cool. I completely agree. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time today. Um, how can listeners follow you and what Death Method is working on? Uh, sure. I mean, you can follow me at jleo3. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Um, 
I make lots of LinkedIn friends too. Um, uh, that's also jleo3. Death Method has a Twitter account. We've got a newsletter. Um, all, both are easy to find from our website. Um, and I mean, what are we doing? We're working with our customers to leverage their own expertise of their particular market or industry, combining it with our expertise in software development and design um, and our experience with, with building products. And my goal is to continue doing that. That's excellent. Well, again, thank you so much. And listeners will be with you next week. Thanks, Brittany.